Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, so much to discuss. So, I, I'll just tell you, I, I, uh, I took a trip uh, last week to give a talk in San Francisco, and I, I missed my flight to San Francisco and my flight home. It was what I've been describing as a, a triumph of ineptitude. And I'll just tell you, I'll just tell you something, just in, just in case you don't know this, because it's, this might come in handy someday, so I hope not, but you should know it. I didn't know it. Which is that if you miss a flight someplace, you have to tell the airline that you missed the flight. Because I had a round-trip ticket, and I, I missed the flight going, and I just took another airline to get there, thinking that, okay, um, I've got my return flight. So, but when I showed up to get my return flight, it had been canceled, because they saw that since I had missed my outgoing flight, they just automatically assumed I didn't go, so they automatically canceled my, my flight back. So it was a whole adventure getting back. I actually got like the last seat on the last flight back. Wow. And the, it, the, the guy told me, well, this one seat, there's just this one seat in first class, and it's, um, you know, from San Francisco to L.A. is, is that's, a, that's, you know, relatively speaking, a cheap flight. So he said, but he says, this one will cost you uh, $1,250. And I was like, well, I can't, you know, I can't do that. So he says, okay, here's what I'm going to do. He says, I'm going to book you for tomorrow. I'm like, but I can't, I don't, I, I don't have a place to stay. I got, I got to get back. He said, no, 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 I'm going to book you for tomorrow's flight. That'll be $120. And then I'm going to make you stand by for this flight. And then... So, and then I ended up getting first class because that was the only seat. But anyway, let me go back to the moment where I'm waiting to find out if I had missed my flight or not, right? So that, that's how the story ends. But I'm waiting in line and I, this guy, I let this guy go in front of me because I saw, he said, you know, I'm going to miss my flight. And I had thought I had already missed my flight. So I figured, you know, let, let him just go in front of me. And I saw that he had the word God on his shirt. And I thought, okay, good. Let's, you know, let me just help him out. He'll make his flight, whatever it is. So he goes, he gets in front of me. And he, and it's, I see it's a, it's a concert t-shirt. And I'm not even going to mention the band, but it's a very, like, hardcore negative energy band, right? And he turns around so that he's facing the, the ticketing person. I actually have a photograph of this if you want to see it. But... Um, and I see the back of his shirt says in big letters, God is nowhere. <laughs> right? And nowhere is one word, and, and the no is in red, big red letters. Right? Or actually, it's the same typeface. Same font size, rather. But it's in red letters. And I'm just standing there looking, because I'm wondering, am I going to get back to L.A. tonight? Am I not? Is, this, is there going to be a happy ending to this story like right now it seems pretty negative <laughs> but you know God is God you, you, you never know what's going to happen the next moment so so I'm looking at his t-shirt and I'm like reading it and rereading it and, it and it says God is nowhere and then I realize oh wait 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 a second nowhere is one word but you can, it also can be read God is now here <laughs> the exact the exact same word. And so I, and I remember, I took a picture of it and I sent it to a good friend and he wrote back immediately, that's really depressing. And I realized, oh, he didn't get the, it's how you read it. It's how you think. You can think God is nowhere or you can think God is now here. It's completely up to you. It's just how you read it. You know, obviously the person who had made the shirt had put the word no in red letters, but why did he put the no in red letters? So that you shouldn't read it the right way. In other words, you know, there's a, there's a Shakespearean quote, um, I hope this is exact, but it's close, which is, uh, the, the lady doth protest too much, methinks. Meaning to say, if someone's arguing too much, if they have to put the word no in red letters, that's to stop you from reading something else. Right? Which is now. God is now here. So I thought, okay, I'm just going to think positive. And then I told you the end of the story. I ended up getting, you know, uh, 
the, the, the trip back. Um, so, so it worked out. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of, it, it's, 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 it's kind of up to us how, because we don't know either way. I, I think I told you if, you, if you remember a few weeks back, I'm, I'm working with this, um, really one of the top physicists in the world right now. You know, and, and he's got, he's a wonderful guy, but not someone who's religious, quote unquote. And yet, during a conversation, when somehow the conversation, I didn't ask this question, I wish I had, someone else asked the question, how does, he, he asked, how does something come out of nothing? Which you know is, is the central question of Kabbalah, is explaining the mechanics how God created the world out of nothingness, right? And he, he basically, he said, I don't know. I don't know. You know? You know, so, so ultimately, if you engage someone long enough, nobody knows. W- what do we know? So everyone is creating their own reality on, on, some, on some level, you know? Then, but there is an ultimate truth. We say Torah emet. That means that there actually is a structure to the universe. See, if you look around the world, you'll see everything is so incredibly precise it might be mysterious how things actually unfold. But the actual structure of the universe from the subatomic level to the astro level with the orbiting of you know, billions, hundreds of billions, maybe trillions of heavenly spheres is exceedingly exact. You know, DNA, exceedingly exact. All these things. So, so there is a very clear structure behind everything. It, it's, it's, it's reasonable to think that there's the one who structured the exceedingly precise structure. I, I don't think that's an irrational thought. I, I don't. I don't. And I, I, I also don't think that it's irrational to think that the one who exceedingly structured the universe and each one of us has an expectation for us. It's like there's an expectation for everything else. Why would that not be the case? Why would that? Why would that not be the case? So, so I want to. Um, and and by the way, I, I just just as an aside, I, I really can't go into the details so so much. But you see, God's salvation can happen in the in the blink of an eye. In the blink of an eye. And, you know, we say, keharif ayin. That's the, the, the phrase in Hebrew. And we just saw it in our community this past Shabbos. Someone was literally at the end of his life. At the end of his life, and hours later, he was fine. And I can't go into all the details, but it's, it is, you, you, you can't give up hope. You cannot give up hope. Can't give up hope on yourself. You can't give up hope on each other. You can't. You can't. Okay. So. So, it's um, maybe surprising to discuss Haman, right? As in the arch villain of the Jewish people, the Purim story, at this time of year. But you'll see, there's a big Haman connection to this time of year. And, um, and sort of like a very beautiful sort of like overview of sort of Jewish thought that, 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 that comes down through this exploration. So what's the connection between Haman and this time of year? So if, if you remember, um, Haman purchases the right to destroy the Jews from King Ahasuerus. And one of the sort of under-discussed facts is that Ahasuerus, the Gemara says, hated Haman, uh, hated the Jewish people more than Haman. You know, even though he seems to be somewhat of a feckless king, nonetheless, and, and what, they, what the Gemara compares it to is someone who has a, a big ditch in his field, like a big hole in his field, and there's another one who's got, another person who's got a big mound of dirt. And the guy with the big mound of dirt is figuring, trying to figure out where can I put my dirt. And then he meets up with the one who's got a big hole in his field. 
And so the one with the big mound of dirt puts it in the big hole, and, and that's, that, that, that's how the Gomorrah describes the relationship between Haman and Achishverus. Okay. So, so Haman purchases the right to kill the Jews from Achishverus for 10,000 silver talents. Now, I, I saw a, something written, what the current value of that amount of money is. I, I can't quote it exactly because I don't remember it, but I do remember it was in the hundreds of millions of dollars or maybe even billions, or maybe it was a billion. I don't know, but it was a giant, giant, giant sum of money. And, and Achishveros, to show you just, again, this relationship, said, I don't even want it. You keep it. So, so okay. So now, things turn bad for Achishveros, or rather, things turn bad for Haman in this story. See, it's, it doesn't say anywhere in, 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 in the Megillah, in Megillah's Esther, Hashem's name. It just uses the name Hamelech, the king. So, so it's, it's very deep, because when you see Hamelech, it could mean, it could mean Achishveros, that's what it means on the most simple level, but it's all, also referring to Hashem, working through the king. So there's all sorts of levels going on. Now the big turning point in the, in, in the Megillah is when it says that the king couldn't sleep that night. So they say, you know, that that means that Hashem, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, couldn't take it any longer. The fact that this, that this was going, this, this horrible decree was going to be wrought on the, on the Jewish people, Hashem couldn't sleep, so to speak. You know, it says, of course, Hashem never sleeps, but this is just bringing a point across that, that, that things were about to turn uh, uh, positive. Uh, so, so Haman comes and, and, and Ahasuerus at this point uh, says to him, thinks, by the way, thinks that, that, that there's a murder plot against him. Achishverus thinks and, and thinks that Haman is behind this murder plot to kill him. And so, so Achishverus asks Haman, what, what should be done for someone who the king wants to honor? And Haman, not aware that Achishverus is thinking that he's eyeing him as a, as, as a person who wants to kill him and become king, Haman answers, you should give him your crown and your royal robe and let him ride on your royal horse. <laughs> Which is proof to Achishverus that he's trying to be the king. It was like the perfectly wrong thing for Haman to say. Mm-hmm. So Achishverus says, great, do all those things for Mordecai. So this is now where it's really starting to go south fast for, for Haman. Haman goes to Mordecai and he's got to start, you know, giving him all this tremendous honor. And what is Mordecai doing at this time? He is learning Torah. What else would Mordecai be doing, right? And Haman asks Mordecai, what are you learning right now? And Mordecai says back, I'm learning about the Omer offering. So this is why we're discussing this right now. This is the Haman connection to the times that we're in right now. Because right now we're in the days of the Omer offering. And as you know, the Omer offering was just a little bit of barley, which, which the Torah explains is animal food. It's fit really for animals, as opposed to wheat, which is, makes a finer form of bread. Barley is like, you know, and, and it's just the Omer offering is, is a small amount of barley. So Haman says to Mordecai, your little barley offering, your Omer offering, was more valuable, offset 10,000 silver talents, right? Like a billion dollars, your handful of barley was worth more than that. Now, Rabbi Moshe Shapiro, quoting the Ari, says that the gematria of Omer is the gematria of the word yakar, which means very precious, very valuable. So on the most simple level, you see that the Omer is very valuable. Because it offset a, it, a billion dollars worth of silver, approximately, right? That's on a simple level. Okay. But we have to go deeper. So, now that we see the connection between Haman 
and and these days of the Omer leading up to receiving the Torah on the 50th day at Mount Sinai, we see that there are actually more connections to be made here. So, so the, the question that, that we've been sort of living with, you know, in discussing this over the last few years is, how could it be that if the whole point is that if you're counting to Mount Sinai and we get the Torah on the 50th day, how can it be that you don't count the number 50? We only count up to the number 49. Like, on, on a big level, it makes no sense. Like, the whole point is to get to count the number 50. Why aren't we doing that? We stop at 49, and then the 50th day is Shavuos, and we get the Torah at Mount Sinai. And the, the answer that we've been living with <laughs> is that, you see, the Torah is infinite. You can't put a number on the Torah. In other words, the gap between 49 and 50 is the gap between heaven and earth. I mean, between the finite and the infinite. I mean, it's not just another integer. It just just goes all the way out. Like, you can't put a number on the Torah. It's beyond, 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 beyond. Okay, so that's why we count to 49 and then 50. Now, with that in mind... Isn't it interesting that Haman wanted to hang Mordechai on a pole that was 50 almost high? In other words, what was Haman saying by making this 50 almost high? He was saying that there is no God factor. This whole idea of the level of 50, that there's the finite and then the infinite, and that we can't control the infinite, that that's the providence of God, Haman's approach is, no, 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 no. It's going to be Dafka 50. It's going to be exactly 50. It's going to, because this is the demonstration that everything is within our power, and everything is, Haman would say, within my power. It's the ultimate chutzpah. It's the ultimate chutzpah. And what am I going to do with that 50-foot pole? I'm going to take the top Torah scholar, right? The 50th level, right? The 50th level is the day the Torah is given. I'm going to take the top Torah scholar in the world, Mordecai, and hang him from that pole to show that I'm in charge, not God. And of course we know that Haman is a descendant of Amalek, and it says that the nation of Amalek wages war against God. Now, there's a connection that I've always wondered about, but only right this moment is it kind of becoming clear within this context. I'd like to suggest another answer, which is the Medrash says that that 50-foot pole came from a very surprising place. It came from Noah's Ark. (laughs) Right? That's the Medrash. And I always was thinking, like, what's... I couldn't quite wrap my mind around the connection between... Noah's Ark and the flood and everything like that and this pole of Hummins, right? But in this context, I think it's, it, 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 it's, it's, it, it, it's logical. Which is, do you know the Tower of Babel? Do you know what the Tower of Babel was? It, was? it was the idea that we're going to build a structure so high that we are going to be impervious to any flood that comes onto the world. And it says that they would, this was, and and then another way of phrasing this, but you'll understand it in in that context, is that they wanted to wage war against God from from this, the top of the Tower of Babel, basically. So if you think about it, it sounds like silly, it's too crazy. How, what are you going to do? You're going to stand on top of this tower and throw your fists against God? You're going to try to beat God up? Like, that doesn't make any sense. But the point is, if, if human beings can assert mastery over their circumstances so that there are no X factors, there are no God factors, there is no 50th level. If you say, I am now in control and you can't get me, that is the definition of waging war against God. I am independent from you, God. You, you don't count or matter or whatever it is. That, that's what the whole Tower of Babel thing was. That's, that, that was the idea. And it was in reaction to the flood. Right? What is the flood? The flood is, I am 
completely vulnerable. My life hangs by a thread. It's by the grace of God that I can even survive one moment to another moment. You see it by the flood. God can bring a flood and, you know, in one second I'm alive, the next second we're all gone. So now, let's put it all together. Now it makes perfect sense, doesn't it? That Haman, who's asserting his control over this 50th level, over the infinite level, is taking the ark from the, fl- the, 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 the central pole, pole from, the, from the ark to show that, like the Tower of Babel, I'm, I'm, I'm impervious to any flood you want to bring. Anything that you want to bring, God, I'm the one who's in control. You say your Torah is running the world? I'm going to take the master of Torah of the entire generation and hang him from the 50th level to show you that I'm in control. Now, now I'd like to suggest another idea behind the gamatra of Omer being Yakar. See, the, it's not just that the little barley offering offset 10,000 talents of silver. So it's valuable in that way. Okay, that's, that's true. But I want to say that what's so valuable about the Omer is that we it symbolizes us counting to 49 and not to 50. What's so valuable is the world view that we have that's symbolized by the Omer which goes to 49 and not to 50. In other words, our appreciation of of the fact that there is so much that we can do but that God runs the show and that God is infinite. And that's what's Yakar. That's what's Yakar. The preciousness of that world outlook. You know, I was, I was talking with someone just over Shabbos, and, you know, I was asking him if he learns any Hasidus, and, you know, we were talking about sort of like the more mystical side of Torah teaching and things like this. You know, Torah, again, is like the most macro uh, field of thought, because, you know, we're talking about what's going on in all the heavens, and mapping them out and charting them out. At the same time, we're also looking for you know, bugs and lettuce, right? So it's the most micro at the same time. It's the most macro and it's the most micro. It's, it's all-encompassing. There, there are ways, there are teachings of how to elevate sparks and the most mundane aspects of our day-to-day lives from the time literally we're born to our last breath we should all live long. It's all, it's all together. It's all-encompassing. The, 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 this dimension and dimensions beyond. So, you know, it's one thing. So I was talking about the usefulness of, of, of understanding sort of like our, what I like to call our cartography of the heavens. You know, like we have map making of the heavens, like the very spheroid and the regions of heaven and things like that, that, we, that, 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 that we've been able to chart out and to define, right? And so how is that useful? How is that useful? And so what I was trying to explain to this person was, I said, imagine you say that you're, you see, we, we believe in, in another world. We believe in an afterlife, right? We believe in Olam Abba, right? So you can say, yeah, I believe in Olam Abba. Okay, I do, I do, right? But let me make a comparison, okay? Which is, imagine you say, I'm an internationalist. I, 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 I say that there's the United States, and there are other countries. Right? Okay, that's one level. Or I can say, I'm an internationalist. There's the United States. There's also Europe. These are the countries of Europe. There's also Africa. These are the countries of Africa. There's also South America. These are the countries of South America. There's Asia. These are the countries of Asia. Now, it's like, okay, you really have, you say you're an internationalist, you really have a vision of the entire world. Right? Not just there's America and then all the other countries, right? Like, you see, the reason why that's important is because we say there are other realms, right? But if we haven't got an articulation of what that means, other realms, 
then we haven't really, we aren't really seeing the whole. We haven't really got the entire map before us at all times. I mean, if you think of just the spherot, just to give one example, Malchus, which is the bottom sphera, which stands for this dimension, is one-tenth of what we know. Or if you want to count Keter as a separate sphera, one-eleventh of what we know. Which means the overwhelming majority of what we're constantly interacting with is unseen. Now, if you have that before you, then you have an ongoing perspective and a way to sort of prioritize and a way to sort of like um, just just have a better sense of where you are and what you're up to and what the stakes are and, and all the rest. So it, that's very different from just saying, okay, there's this world and then after I leave, you know, there's another world. I believe it. You can, I'll take a lie detector test. You'll see I really do believe it. But it's not, it's not helping you as much as it could in terms of getting through this world because you haven't got the broadest perspective of the life that you're living now, the emes, in reality. So that, that's why knowing these type of things actually helps you because you think, oh, this is just sort of like this, this weird, esoteric, escapist sort of notion, but no, this will actually influence and impact how you get through this world in the realest way. So, so there's another interesting uh, point from Haman, and then we'll, we're going to move on because this, this will sort of be a transition point as well. Haman has absolutely, on, on a material level, <coughs> the most you could probably want to have other than being king. He has literally a, a billion dollars in chump change that he can throw around. So that's already that's already speaks to what his you know financial holdings were, right? He's got a very large family. He's he's got a level of influence to the king. That conversation that I mentioned to you, where the king said, "How shall I reward someone who I want to honor?" Right? That conversation takes place in the middle of the night when Haman just swings by the king's bedroom. <laughs> and remember, there was a law in place that anyone who comes unannounced to the king gets the death penalty, which is why the, all the Jews fasted for three days. So, so, so to, to show you how, how great his influence was, and the king gives him his signet ring. Whatever you decree, you stamp with the king's signet ring and it becomes the law of 127 countries, which was all the countries of the world, of the known world. So it would appear that Haman had everything, as by, uh, certainly by contemporary Western civilization standards. Okay, But people are more complicated than that back then and today as well. So, you know, he's got all this influence and Mordechai won't bow down to him. And it gets so much under his skin. He hates it. He can't stand it. He can't stand it. And he says, it's here, if you, if you want to see it, it's uh, chapter 5, verse 13, one of the great moments in the Megillah. Haman says, yet all this means nothing to me so long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. Right? Because he won't bow to him. And now, I mentioned to you before that, that uh, Hashem's name, and I mean Yudke Vavke, actually any name of Hashem, but especially Yudke Vavke, this holiest name of Hashem, is not mentioned in the, in the Megillah. And yet, you see it's encoded in certain places. And one of the sort of like most famous places that it's encoded is when Haman says, all this means nothing to me. Because if you take that phrase, which is, ze enenu shoveli, and you take the last letter of each of those four words, and read it backwards, it spells Yudke Vavke. Right? 
So it's the name of Hashem backwards. So I'm, you, you can really interpret that on a number of different levels. By the way, you know every month of the year has a different permutation. We call it the Tzirif of the Yudke Vavke permutation. Since Hashem's name, Yudke Vavke, stands for love, if you see it spelled backwards, then that stands for dinner judgment. So that's, that's heavy, you know? So the month of the year where the Yudke Vavke is backwards, because it's got to be, that's one of the 12 combinations, it's got to be one of the months, is Tammuz, which is right when the spies started going out to bring back their bad report, returning back on Tishabav. So the month of Tammuz is when the three weeks starts. It's like a heavy din time. So it's, it's interesting that, that Haman is summoning up this type of din, right? Or, this, or if you want to say that he's the one who's got the 50-foot Amos pole, the 50 Amos pole, to show that he's in charge, it's Hashem's name backwards. It's, you can read it another way. Not just that he's in the embodiment of dinner judgment, but that he is just casting aside Hashem, so to speak. He's summoning him and casting him aside, like this 50-foot pole, right? Which is also Noah's Ark, which is just showing that I'm independent. But, but you, ha- you have something else here, because this is now, I just want to talk about the psychology of this for a moment. And I think this is very practical and useful for us in terms of getting through life, okay? I mean, we named these, this series of talks uh, Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. So these, these would be some tools now that I want to share, okay? So how could it be that Haman, who had so much, we kind of went through his, right, his resume, his, his portfolio a little bit just a little while ago, right? He has so much. And yet, one person doesn't bow down to him, and all of a sudden, in his own eyes, he has nothing. And I take him at his word when he says when, that he was really that upset. I believe that he genuinely was that upset. Why is that? And what if I were to tell you that many of us, many, many of us, do this on a daily basis, multiple times a day? And I'm going to tell you what I mean by that. Imagine you're in a casino, okay? And there's this, like, you have some chips in front of you. And you put all your chips in the center of the table, and you say, double or nothing. Right? And then you get, let's say you win. You get more chips. And then you put those in the center of the table. Double or nothing. Right? And then you just keep on doing that. You go through life, just double or nothing. A lot of people, in their casual interactions with other people... They take their self-worth and on every little casual interaction, they take all of their self-worth, like the chips on the casino table, and they slide them into the middle of the table, and that's how they feel about themselves based on how this casual interaction goes down. This person honored me. He didn't honor me. He kind of honored me. (laughs) He didn't honor me as much as I would have liked him to honor me. And they're wagering their self-esteem on an ongoing basis. Like Haman. He's got literally, if you want to, again, by Western standards, he's got everything. He's got more than everything. More than you'll ever have. More than the whole city together has. And one guy doesn't give him the proper honor. And he's like, oh, my life's a catastrophe. Bless you. I heard Rabbi Re'edi put it this way. He says, imagine you have this sort of like high-tech little device, right? And however you, like how you press the buttons on this particular device completely controlled your emotions. Now you had it. You had it. It's in your possession. But someone could, like, like if you pressed a button, it could put you in a horrible mood. Right? Or maybe if you press another button, it would put you in a happy mood. But it would, or maybe you press another button, it would, it would put you in a in a panic, right? Like I would, you would guard that little device with your life, right? You wouldn't want anyone to have that because it's so, it's going to have such a huge impact on you. 
He said, now can you imagine taking that device and you go to the dry cleaners and you hand it to the cashier behind the table at the dry cleaners? <laughs> that you actually hand this device which has complete control over your emotions to strangers, whoever you're talking to, and you're allowing them to press the buttons which are completely controlling your mind? Who would do such a thing? But that's this idea of like going into like interactions with people, like sliding the chips in the middle of the table and saying double or nothing in my self-esteem based on how this interaction goes. A person, so how do you avoid doing that? How do you avoid doing that? You know? Because I, I, like I say, I think people do it all the time, but I think very few people are aware that they're doing it. Right? Well, you have to, you have to just take a kind of of a, and I mean this in a positive way, a cold, hard look at yourself and realize, say, however old you are, you know? I don't care how old you are, right? Do you know how much you've had to claw through <laughs> to reach where you are right now? I don't care what position in society you are. Just to be alive at this moment, how much you've had to claw through just to be standing or sitting here today. There is records and records and reams of accomplishments. Right? Everything from, you know, ace that test to got out of the house today. Right? I mean, and with all of that accomplishment, this nudnik over here is going to tell you how to feel about yourself? Or you're going to allow that nudnik to define how you feel about yourself? Why? Why would you ever do that? Why would you ever do that? So, from that point of view, you realize, everyone should realize that there are, they are tremendously worthy of respect. And not, don't draw the wrong conclusion, and therefore you better respect me, or I guess I'm not worthy of respect at all. That would be the exact wrong conclusion to draw from this. It's like, you want to be, you want to be nice to me? Great. You don't want to be nice to me? Well, what can I do? You know, I... Rabbi Green once said that you have to love every Jew. There's a commandment to love every Jew. But some you can love from afar. <laughs> Understand? It's like, it's like uh, a friend of mine once said this phrase. I've been quoting it ever since. He said, my name is Paul, and that's between you all. <laughs> it's like, you know, you want to you wanna do crazy stuff? That's... It's your business. It's not, I don't have to make it my business. That's between y'all. You're doing it. I don't have to integrate that into my psyche. So, so it says, the Talmud teaches that a person leaves this world without having accomplished half of what they want. This is very interesting. A very interesting uh, foundation. Which is again getting to this idea of the 49th day versus the 50th day. Understanding that, you know, see, the problem is, is that we project our dreams and securities, fears, whatever, Unto other people. So we imagine like, 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 you know, Bill Gates, I think, is really one of the unsung heroes in the world. You know, as, as much as his wealth is reported, he's given hundreds of millions of dollars, maybe even billions, I don't even know what the number is up to, to charity. People don't really talk about it, you know? Now, so you would say, well, Bill Gates has certainly accomplished everything he wants to accomplish. Well, I know one of the things that he's trying to accomplish is to wipe out malaria from the world. And is, he's spent hundreds of millions of dollars on that, approximately. Well, as far as I know, he hasn't succeeded that yet. I think there's still malaria in the world. 
So, so you understand how it's relative to the person. Just because he, you can point to someone who may have accomplished more than you could have ever hoped to accomplish, but it doesn't mean that he's accomplished more than he ever could have hoped himself to accomplish. Every single person is their own unit. Every single person is, is in competition with themselves. Not, not, not with each other. Use other people's success to inspire you. But don't be deluded by it because they've got a completely separate account. You know? It's like, I, I was talking to one of my kids and I said, you know, please don't do that. And they said back, well, the other kid does it. I said, I'm talking about you. How come whenever I talk to you about your behavior, you always want to discuss that guy? I'm talking to you. And, and we need to have that level of clarity as to what you have to say to yourself, what each of us has to say to themselves. What am I capable of? And what do I need to be doing? And, and with the understanding that I'm never going to get it all done. But, you know, there's that famous thing, you, you, right? You have to aim for the heavens, right? And then maybe you'll land at the stars, but that's pretty good. You know, one of the tricks that someone told me as a way of managing the Yetzirah, the, the negative inclination, is instead of setting one concrete goal in terms of short term, you set two concrete goals for the short term. And then you probably won't get both, but you'll get one. Whereas if you set just one, you might not get that one. So in other words, there's a level of, like he told me, I think he said, you know, I tried to go to the mikveh before Nates. He says, I almost, Nates is the earliest time of davening. He goes, I almost never get to the mikveh, but I make Nates. But I make Nates because I'm trying to get to the mikvah before Nates. If I only said Nates, I'd never make Nates. <laughs> but that, that, okay, so that's on, on the spiritual level, but that can be applied in all, all facets of life. So, okay, we'll stop here. Hi, I'm glad you're here. This is a special edition. Just a, just a few minute uh, idea. It's a, it's a new idea for me and it's a, a visual that um, I was excited about and kind of ties together a lot of different thoughts about Sphira, the counting of the Omer. So without further ado, it won't be long, just a few minutes. Let me just, uh, just try to share it with you. So we have... Uh, Two, well, many, many things going on with Sphere, but two uh, sort of competing ideas. And I think most people aren't even aware that these are two competing ideas. But let me, let me explain to you, uh, and then you, you'll see how they're two um, ways of counting the Omer that are actually moving in opposite directions. Um, so what, how do I mean by that? So there's the number that you count. So the first day of the Omer, you, so you're counting up to 49. So one, two, three, four, five, it's getting higher and higher. Or you're going from earth all the way up to heaven because the 50th day of the Omer, we're at Mount Sinai, which is literally like just the top of the top of the top, right? The number 50 is the, is in, in Torah thought, is like the, the highest of all the gates of wisdom and everything like that. So there's the numerical counting, starting with one, and then we get all the way up to the top. But then, while we're doing that count, there's another count, so to speak, or another description of the days going on, and that's the Sphira equivalent. So we know that when Hashem created the world, He took all these 
different energies, all the light. And sometimes we say that God created the world out of the Hebrew letters. So we, we have to understand that in this context too. All the letters are different like energy wavelengths. And he took all this light and energy and he compacted it into a physical universe. So again, we always compare that to um, E equals MC squared, right? Because that was Einstein's way of putting a formula to the idea of energy becoming mass. So the energy um, is this sort of divine light, sort of, so to speak, the outer garment of, 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 of Hashem's light. Um, and these are all visuals. We're not to take them too literally. Um, they're just so we can have something to wrap our minds around. Anyway, so God compacted that light and, and, and created the physical universe. So we call all those different aspects of light, we call those the ten spherot. And each one of them has a, a, different, a different quality to them. So, so the top, the top, top, top one is the first day of the Omer, is Chesed Shebe Chesed. And then we count all the way down till we get to the 49th day. And so we're going, we're starting at the top of heaven with Chesed. And then we go all the way down on the 49th day, it's Malchus Sheba Malchus, right there. That's this world is Malchus. That's this dimension. This is sort of like the, the kingdom, so to speak. Um, so, so immediately you see, hey, wait a second, wait a second. Didn't you just say when you start counting, you go from the bottom all the way up to the top, right? On the 50th day, we're at Mount Sinai. But when it comes to the sphere description, we're starting at the top, Chesed, Sheba Chesed, and we're going all the way down on the last day to the bottom. Malchus Sheba Malchus. So we're going, we're starting in heaven and we're going down to earth. So, so when we count the first day, which is kind of starting at the bottom, right? Because we're at the beginning of our journey to Mount Sinai. So we're starting with day one. But wait a second. While we say day one, we say that this correlates with Chesed Sheba Chesed which is all at the top of heaven. And the second day, we're one step closer, moving up to the top of Mount Sinai, right? We say, Gavor Sheba Chesed, which is now the second rung down from heaven, getting closer to earth. So in other words, you've got, there. each number actually has its opposite correlation. You're saying a number, and that's correlating with a construct, this heavenly, <clears throat> this heavenly region, which is all the way at the top of the heavens and is moving progressively down to earth as the number gets higher toward Mount Sinai. So, so to say it very simply, on the one hand, we're counting up. On the other hand, we're counting down. On the one hand, we're moving up toward heaven, number-wise, on the other hand, sphere-wise, we're going from heaven down to earth. Okay, so now, now that we're aware of this sort of like, this surprising dynamic in terms of the counting of the Omer, how can we sort of like, how can we understand this and put the, a, a simple visual to it? So this is kind of the point that I wanted to share, and so we'll get right to it and we'll finish up. <clears throat> I'm sure everyone has had the experience where uh, you've pulled open a window shade. So there's a string and you pull the string down. And as you pull the string down, the window shade goes up. So you pull down and that makes the window shade go up. So that's, that's there's going to be one more step to this, but that's, that's the idea that that as we're pulling down the light, we're, we're, we're talking about these, these sphere of lights that are all the way at the top of the heavens. So we're pulling those down. And as we're pulling those down, so to speak, the shade is going up. That's the numerical counting toward Mount Sinai is going up. Okay, so now we have to add two more important elements. The first element is something that the Chedush Rim says, which is that every sphere a day, a new light is coming into the world. 
So as we're counting these days, the light as we approach Mount Sinai is getting greater and greater and greater and greater. So, so as you're pulling open the shade, what's happening? More and more light is coming into the room. Okay, now here's the final sort of thought to attach to this visual. We're the shade. <laughs> you and me are the shade. So as we're pulling down this heavenly light, we are the ones who are rising up and up and up toward Mount Sinai as more and more light comes into the world. And so the idea is to find a way to integrate that light. And um, uh, everybody knows uh, tomorrow, tonight, is Lagba Omer. Lagba Omer is the uh, when the students of Rabbi Akiva stopped dying and, and, and the, the art site of uh, uh, the Holy Rashbi, um, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, who of course wrote the Zohar, which means shining, shining. It, it's talking about a shining light, a great, great light. So, so it's appropriate that we can kind of integrate all these thoughts on the, on the occasion of, of, of Lagba Omer, and to understand that there's a, a turning point in the amount of light, in the nature of the light that's now coming into the world and coming into our lives and God willing coming into our hearts. Now for some questions and answers. This is not a very deep question, I think, but uh, I guess it's a relevant one. There's some days where it feels like Hashem is just making every little thing go wrong. You start dropping things, knocking things over. Like, it's one thing after another. Right. Hashem, what is going on here? So I guess with... You know, the, you know that Motown song? Mama said there'd be days like this, there'd be days so, yes, like this, my mama said... I think I was singing that to myself as I missed both my flights, too. <laughs> <laughs> right. Nice. So I guess that, that's the question. On days like that, where you notice from, the, from early on that there's this very challenging flow for some reason, um, yeah. Is that the energy of the whole day, or can you shift it, and then the day can become, again, like a more smooth flowing day? Yeah, I mean, what I flashed on just when you said it, I, I haven't gotten an answer, but just what I flashed on is, you know, a lot of times, like, if you imagine football, like, sometimes, like, the running back is running, and there is a wall of defenders, and somehow he gets through the defenders, and then it's just, like, free and clear. Nice. You know? So, I, I, I think that certainly... Certainly, days can start one way and, and turn another. Yeah. Just to follow up from last week, uh, you yeah. gave a beautiful story about the mirror, the artist of the mirror. Yeah. I started thinking about mirrors, and I, I, I read in this book that I'm looking at that in Japanese, the word for mirror is kagami. It's, uh, it's actually four characters. The first character is two characters, ka, which is a character for, for God. Uh, second is uh, kaga is for you, and me is to see. So the Japanese word for mirror is to see God within yourself. That's awesome. That's super fantastic. Awesome. Yeah, that is awesome. fantastic. Yeah, so Love I wanted that. to share, share that. Yeah, that's so really beautiful. fantastic. And then I did a little research just for my own self, because when I do meditations, I talk about muscles in the face. Yeah. And I see there's more than like 300 muscles in the face. I'm like, wait a second, I'm just making that up. You mentioned there were like 12 or something. So well, when you frown, when you frown. frown. So, yeah. okay, so there's apparently 43 yeah. muscles or so in the okay, face, yeah. and then there's a certain number of them. Yeah. There's more that I think used when you... I don't know, I, have to, I can't remember the... Yeah, when you frown, there's more than when you smile. Right, yeah. right, right, right. But 43, I guess, is the number. So yeah, 43, good yeah. to know. Thank you, thank you. Yeah. <laughs>